The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. We've been walking through a series together in the Gospel of Matthew, and that's what we're carrying on in. Today, last week, we looked at the central role of faith in the life of the believer. This morning, we move on in Matthew's Gospel, and we consider together some of the privileges that we have received in Christ through that faith. And my hope is that we will be challenged this morning to consider how we use those privileges that we have in Christ to navigate and bless this broken world. So please turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 17. We'll be reading verses 22 through 27. And I am going to pray before we get into the message this morning because we need God's word to help, or we need God's spirit to help us understand his word. So pray, join with me. Father, we thank you for the ability to come together this morning to sing praises, to hear the reading and teaching of your word. Father, thank you for the class this morning and getting to remember all of your glorious creation you have made. I pray right now, Lord, that you would do a work in our hearts through your spirit, through your word, uh, God, that we would understand, that we would receive, that we would be changed. Help these truths land on us this morning. Thank you for speaking to us. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, Matthew 17, starting in verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Did your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is the word of the Lord. Well, our section begins with Christ once more telling his disciples that he is going to be killed. In chapter 16, we saw Jesus open up this door. He starts telling his disciples this, that this was the future. And yet again, the disciples can't wrap their heads around it. It says they were greatly distressed. It simply doesn't make sense to them, no matter how many times Jesus says it, that the Messiah would come and die. He's the chosen one of God. Something about that just does not sit right to them. And while we know much of their dismay was not flowing from faith, Jesus makes that clear, they weren't wrong in thinking that the death of the Christ seemed like a great injustice. It certainly would be, and it certainly was. 
But what they failed to understand was that the mission of Christ was not to come and ensure that he got everything he deserved. No, the culmination of his mission involved him laying his rights down. And that's what we see being pictured here in this exchange. Rights conferred and rights deferred. In this story, we see Peter and a tax collector. This tax, the two drachma tax, was an annual temple tax that was levied toward adult males in Israel. It was not a Roman tax, but rather one run by the temple for the upkeep of the temple. It had its roots in the half-shekel tax we read earlier, Brian read for us earlier from Exodus. A half-shekel was equal to two drachma, though actually at this time they used denarii, so it was still called the two drachma tax, but that was it. So that's what this tax is that we are dealing with. It was originally put into place in the Mosaic Law for the upkeep of the tabernacle, and throughout the history of Israel, it remained an expectation that all men faithful and loyal to the temple, to God, and to the nation would contribute to this tax. And so Peter is here in Capernaum, and he's approached by the tax collector who asks, does your teacher not pay the tax? He wants to know, will Jesus comply with this expectation? He had grounding for this question. It was well known by this point that Jesus was a bit countercultural, to say the least. His observation of the Sabbath, his relationship to fasting, his confrontation with the scribes and Pharisees, all of this went against the norm. And so this man's wondering, is this another one of those things that Jesus doesn't do? Peter, it seems, without hesitation, replied, yes, as in, yes, he does. Peter's surely thinking, of course he does. He's a good Jew. He loves the Lord. He honors the temple. He pays the tax. Yes, he does that. But Peter, we come to see, yet again, is speaking in haste. And so as Peter comes into the house they were staying at, which very likely may have been Peter's house, which is why he was likely approached about this tax, Jesus is in there. And whether he overheard or just being Jesus knew what had happened outside, he sees an opportunity to teach Peter about himself, about what he came to do, and about the changes that he was bringing. For Jesus, it was not a simple yes or no answer to whether he pays this tax. He says to Peter, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Peter says, they tax others. This is right. If a king is the one levying the tax, he and his household are not the ones who are going to be paying it. And so Jesus then replies to Peter's answer and says, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, then he lays out this miracle with the fish and the shekel. And he says, give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, what is going on here? It can be a bit confusing at the first reading, but essentially Jesus is using this as an opportunity to show Peter and us yet again who Jesus is and how his arrival brings about fundamental changes to how God's people 
will relate to him. We get here a reminder that we are a people who are blessed beyond measure. Specifically, we are a people who have been set free in Jesus Christ. But we don't use the gift of our freedom selfishly, but rather as an opportunity for good. We could summarize it this way. We have been set free in Christ to sacrifice for the good of others. We've been set free in Christ to sacrifice for the good of others. And that's what we see here being pictured in this passage. And and those two main themes are where we're going to spend our time this morning. So first, we have been set free in Christ. Though Jesus uses plural language here about the sons being free, he is rooting this discussion in himself. This is first and foremost a declaration of freedom that he has. The question was about Jesus. Does he pay the tax? And so Jesus says to Peter, do do I pay the tax? Must I pay this tax to be a faithful Jew? For any normal human at that time, the answer would be yes. It was a requirement of the law. Yes, you should pay the tax, Jesus. But Jesus says, let me ask you this. Would the son of a king pay the king's tax? And as we've said, the answer is no. Now, why is Jesus bringing up kings here? Well, there's a natural implication that the king in this scenario is God. He's the one who's over the temple. So if he is the king who's over the temple, and this allusion is being made to the son of the king, then Jesus naturally is claiming that sonship for himself. A sonship that was clearly distinct and unique from any other person in Israel. All others in Israel were expected to pay the tax for the upkeep of the temple as a way of honoring God. But Jesus is saying that he, as the Son of God, is not bound under these same regulations. We're told in Hebrews that while Jesus was faithful in all of God's, or sorry, while Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant, Jesus is greater than Moses in that Jesus is the Son and has the glory of being the builder of the house itself. The temple was owned by Jesus. He was the one over it with his father. He didn't need to pay this tax. This is a phenomenal statement he has just made to Peter. We've seen Jesus use this same argumentation already in relationship to the Sabbath. When accused of being unlawful on the Sabbath, he declares himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. The one who decides what lawful practice of the Sabbath is. Jesus was unique. Peter needed to understand that, and we do as well. And we've spent much time in Matthew already marveling at who Jesus is. Most recently, the the Mount of Transfiguration, seeing Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God. But today, our passage explicitly invites us to consider the implications of Jesus' uniqueness for us. By using plural language here, Jesus is inviting us 
into those unique privileges and freedoms that he enjoys as the Son of God. And I pray that we feel increased joy in our hearts this morning as we consider the freedom that is ours in Christ. We are in a society who is obsessed with freedom. Give me liberty or give me death. There's an aspect of this that is right and good. God talks a lot about freedom. God does not like oppression. But much of our hunger for freedom in America is driven more by self-determination than it is necessarily anything godly. And so when we hear Jesus' declaration that the sons are free, we freedom-loving Americans say yes and amen. And those of the political persuasion that less tax is the right answer, they might look at the scenario and think, right on, Jesus, down with taxes. But before we go too far down the road of ringing the liberty bell, let's understand what the freedom is that Jesus is talking about, because it's much greater than any concept of freedom we can come up with ourselves. The issue that Jesus is raising here is an issue of how do followers of Christ walk in relationship to the law? And by law, we will define this in a minute, we mean God's law. So just what is Jesus freeing his disciples from? Later in Matthew, Jesus is going to partake of his last supper with the disciples. When he does, he says, as he takes the cup of wine, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant we are told elsewhere. The Bible talks a lot about covenants. Covenants are essentially contracts, promises made by one party to another. God is a God who makes promises So God is a God who makes covenants. We see several covenants throughout the scriptures. God covenants with Noah, saying he will never flood the whole earth again. Nothing is required of Noah. It's a unilateral promise that God makes to Noah. He will keep that promise. God covenants with Abraham, saying he'll make him a great nation and give Abraham a land, and will make Abraham a blessed blessing to all the nations of the earth. This, again, was a unilateral covenant. God would do it, despite what Abraham and his descendants did. But then, after God brings the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, out of slavery in Egypt, and begins to formally establish them as a nation, as a picture of His people on the earth... He makes another covenant with them. But it's a conditional covenant this time. He says, if you obey my commands and my statutes, all of them that I command you today, then I will give you and keep you in this land of rich blessing. And you will be blessed. And you will be a blessing. But if you fail to keep my commands and transgress them, then I will remove my blessing from you and kick you out of that good land that I have given you. And God then gives his people the law. Now, in Scripture, law can be used to mean a few things. It can be the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. The law can be used to mean all of the Scriptures themselves. Law can be used in a general way of of God's... um, heart, and law can be used to mean the ordinances in which Israel was bound 
under that Mosaic covenant. That's how we're talking about law this morning. Those ordinances of Israel bound under the Mosaic law of covenant. God gave ordinances for the people of Israel. There were laws on on purity and morality. There were laws about ritual practices and sacrifice in the temple. And there were laws of just basic civil governance. And though God had previously made His covenant with Abraham... That no matter what Abraham and his descendants did, God would make them a people, give them a land, bless the world through them for the time. Under the law of Moses, the people of Israel were bound to worship God through strict adherence to this covenant contract with extensive laws and regulations. Now, why? If God was going to bless Abraham, no matter what, why did God give this law and establish this strict covenant for this nation? We we get help understanding that in the New Testament. The book of Galatians wrestles heavily with this idea. We're told that the law as given through the Mosaic covenant served as a convicting tool for the people of Israel. The law was never the means by which the people of God could actually be made right with Him. Paul says, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness indeed would be by the law. But he goes on, that is not what the law did. The law instead made Israel aware of their sin and utter inadequacy. They could not keep the law of God perfectly, and so the law stood not as a savior over them, but as a captor. That doesn't mean the law wasn't good. The law was good and delightful, revealing the very heart of God to His people. It still reveals God's heart to us and is good for us to read and know and understand, but man could not uphold his end of that bargain. The temple system and the sacrificial system, they were all implemented to show the distance between God and man and what was needed to mend that distance. The temple showed they needed to be with God, but the temple also reminded of their distance from Him. The priest could only enter the Holy of Holies where God dwelt once a year after making sacrifices for sin. The sacrifices were means of being cleansed before God, but the sacrifices were offered continually, showing that they were incomplete and imperfect and unable to bring lasting freedom from sin. And so the people of Israel were a law-oriented people. To love God meant to obey His law, all of it, sacrifices, temple rituals, societal norms, etc. It was all bound up together. But then comes Christ, and He comes to liberate, not from godliness and godly living, but liberate from a law-centered, law-oriented way of relating to God. Again, the law showed us our inadequacies and our need for something greater. Jesus, the greater, comes and He sets us free. 2 Corinthians 3 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of Lord is, there is freedom. 
Galatians 5 reads, for freedom, Christ has set us free, meaning free from that law. Christ changed the system. If the temple was where the people were to meet with God, Jesus now is the true and better temple. The temple practices were being replaced by direct access to God through Christ. When Christ was crucified on the cross, the curtain of the Holy of Holies was torn in two. Christ gave direct access to the Father. It's hard for us living in the age of Christ to conceive the difference, the the earth-shattering difference that took place by what Jesus did. Christ is the better sacrifice. He offered sacrifice once for all for sin. He doesn't have to offer it repeatedly like the old inadequate animal sacrifices. The various non-moral cultural laws simply meant to to set the people of Israel apart and to teach a lesson about the coming of Christ were, were now obsolete as the people of God would not be a single nation state anymore here on this earth but would be a people from every tribe and tongue and nation who would live as sojourners among the nations. A new way of relating to God had come. Peter had an old covenant mindset still. To be a good Jew, you should give the temple tax. Jesus says, no, the temple and its regulations are going away. For one greater than the temple is here. The sacrificial system is going away. Look at me. I'm going to be the great sacrifice for sin. That is why I will die. All other religions and philosophies of the world depend on self-performance. Do enough good to outweigh the bad. That's not the way it is with Christ. From the beginning... What we see in the scriptures, true religion has been about faith and dependence upon God. And though God gave a system of laws and ordinances to the people of Israel, they were meant to show them that they couldn't possibly rely on themselves to be with God. They needed to be set free from sin. And so Christ came. And he did what we could not. He kept the whole law, though he didn't have to. And he kept it for us to break its power over us and set us free in salvation that he was working. If one trusts in faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, then we are told neither death nor life nor angels, nor power, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of Christ. We have been sealed by His Spirit. If you are here and you have said, yes, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and yes, He died for my sins because I broke His laws, then you are a son or daughter of God. You are set free in Christ. You are not bound under the law as Israel once was, but you have the Spirit of God now in you. And if you're here, but you've not accepted Christ as your Savior, 
and you still live in in a works-based mentality in this world, know that there is one who came to set you free, that you might rest in what he has done rather than what you must do. I encourage you to come to him. Now, does that mean it doesn't matter at all what we do as believers? Good, faithful believers are sitting here and we're probably uncomfortable. Okay, yes, but what about righteous living? No, it matters. Paul in Galatians, as he argues against this law mentality, he says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Under the law, our works were highlighted and shown to be inadequate. Under grace and the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ, His works are highlighted and shown to be sufficient for our inadequacies. There's still inadequacies. We need to grow in them. But we look at what He has done. We need to strive for holiness. But we don't have to worry about being cast out of the land. The law of grace and the new covenant flows from that covenant made to Abraham, that unilateral one-way covenant from God saying, I will do it. This is amazing grace. And like God gave the people of Israel the law to show them what life in the earthly kingdom would look like, God has given us the teachings of Christ and the apostles in the New Testament to show us what life under this new covenant in His heavenly kingdom looks like. And it's, and it's not freedom to sin, but freedom from sin. It's not lawlessness, but a transformed heart attuned to God, which follows, as Romans says, the law of the Spirit of life. The Spirit who is at work within us. Peter hadn't grasped most of this yet, and we can't blame him. Not all of it had been fully revealed. But Jesus says to Peter, you don't have to pay this tax to be justified. This concept, as I said, can make us squirm. We're performance-driven people and a Bible-loving people who want to obey God. But there is a reality If you truly have received Christ Jesus, the requirements of the law do not hang over you as a condemning force. And there is no sin or failure of yours that can condemn you. All curses have been reversed and all punishment has been paid for by Christ. This is a glorious thing. And so being a people who have been freed, we should have joy in that. Understanding this fuels our joy in the gospel of what Jesus has done. But we have to be careful that we don't submit ourselves again to a yoke of slavery. We must not slip into legalism. What I I don't mean by legalism is pursuing righteousness. Some claim any pursuit of righteousness or saying God requires us to live in any certain way is legalism. That's not what I mean by legalism. No, that's not the legalism we are talking about. If you've been saved by Christ, we will pursue His ways. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. But the legalism we avoid is a legalism that says, I'm, whether 
by statement or action, I'm saved by my works. Keeping the law is how I am made right before God. Such a mentality robs us of joy and the grace of of Christ that has come, and it dishonors the work that he has completed, produces self-righteousness and judgment, anxiety and anger. It does not produce life. In the Galatian church, some believers were saying that circumcision was necessary still for salvation. Galatians is the only book Paul wrote where his initial greeting has no encouragements. (laughs) He comes out of the gate hot. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Our temptation is either in action or in mindset to add to the requirements of salvation. Yes, we trust Christ for salvation, but you really can't be saved if you don't read your Bible every day, or you really can't be saved if you don't tie the full 10%. You really can't be saved if you haven't been baptized. You really can't be saved. You could add to the list. We should do those things. There was a time in my life, and I've shared this before, but when I felt that Christ's statement that his yoke is easy and his burden is light was just as far away from me as the moon. His word felt heavy and cumbersome. But through the help of friends and by the grace of God, I realized I was living as if I was a slave to the law, trying to perfect myself through the flesh. I was afraid of every misstep, afraid of any error, afraid of losing my salvation in Christ Jesus. That's not the mindset of a son who has been set free. And when I realized that, I experienced the joy of my salvation in a deeper way that I hadn't fully before. I was saved by Christ, but I wasn't acting like it. I'm no less pursuant, I hope, of holiness now than I was, but I pursue that in freedom, feeling the assurance and the grace that the freedom in Christ affords me. We are people who have been freed. This would have been shocking to Peter to know he didn't, he didn't have to pay the temple tax. And, and as we've said, freedom in Christ goes so far beyond just paying a temple tax. But Jesus doesn't stop there. And as we said, he acknowledged his freedom in This situation, he acknowledged his freedom as the Son of God, but then he relinquishes it for the good of others. As believers, we have been set free in Christ, but the next thing our passage shows us is we've been set free to sacrifice for the good of others. Again, being the independent, freedom-loving self-oriented, sinful people that we are, this next part really can rub up against many of our natural inclinations. Jesus just said he doesn't have to pay the tax. But then the story takes an unexpected turn. 
No, Peter, he says, I don't have to pay the tax because I'm the son of the living God, the child of the high king of heaven, the builder of the house of God itself. But, and this is where the merciful heart of the Lord, what sets Jesus apart from all earthly rulers, the grace of God in heaven shines through, but so as not to give offense to them, I will pay it for the sake of others. This is the heart of our Lord. The disciples are distressed that Jesus would suffer and die. They aren't wrong, but this is Jesus we're speaking of, Jesus who came on a mission to humble himself for the sake of humanity. When Satan seeks to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, what did he do? He tried to get Jesus to assert his rights. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to be bread so that you might not be hungry. If you are the Son of God, then assert your rights to protection and have the angels come and take care of you. If you are the Son of God, then just listen to me and enjoy ruling over the nations right now. Satan says, Jesus, enough with this humiliation business. Lay claim to your rights. Show the world who you truly are. Peter did this in his own way. He says to Jesus, far be it from you, Lord, that you should be killed. No, 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 that's not fitting for you. We see it play out again as Jesus hangs on the cross. The heckling crowd, they cry out, he saved himself. Can he save others? Let him assert his rights if he is who he says he is. Jesus could have done all of these things in a heartbeat. Jesus could have refused to pay the temple tax. And he would have been well within his right to do so. But Jesus was on a mission that involved setting aside his rights, laying down his life for the sake of others. Philippians says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He didn't empty himself of his deity, but he set aside his rights. He laid down his claim to a life that was befitting for his eternal glory, and he took on flesh. This is the heart of our Lord. This is the gospel. And we're called to follow in this sacrificial way of living. He calls us to walk with him on this earth as ones who are free, knowing, knowing that we are free in Christ, yet willingly giving up that freedom at times for the good of others, for the sake of the spread of the gospel. However, not to give offense to them, give it to them for me and for yourself. Peter, we don't have to pay this tax, but let's pay it willingly so as to not create unnecessary stumbling blocks between us. How countercultural, not just in Jesus' day, but in ours as well. And we see this pattern carried out through the New Testament. This isn't just a Jesus thing, this is an us thing. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul asserts his own freedoms in Christ, yet turns right around to say that though he is free from all, he has made himself a servant to all, 
that he might win more of them. In the same passage, he says, though God makes it clear it's fitting that a full-time minister of the gospel should be provided for financially, Paul says, but I've made no use of any of these rights, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. He's saying, Corinthians, you charge me with wrong for accepting monetary provision for my gospel labors. Though you are wrong in this, I will forego payment so that the gospel won't be hindered in your presence. And in chapter 8 of the same letter, he lays out a well-known example of food sacrificed to idols. He says, food sacrificed to idols are nothing. Idols are nothing. So if you and a brother in Christ come together, and that brother has a weaker conscience and doesn't recognize he's free to eat this food that has been presumably bought from the market but had been sacrificed, so long as neither of them are celebrating this idol together, you're free to eat it. But if your brother has concerns about that, has a weaker conscience and doesn't recognize that, you shouldn't eat it. Even though it's well within your freedom to engage, he says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble... I will never eat meat, lest my brother stumble. That's quite a statement of sacrifice. I'll never do this thing that I'm perfectly welcome to do, but I'll do it for the sake of my brother. Though Paul came out hard against circumcision in Galatians and in the require, people requiring that of others, we see in the book of Acts, for the sake of reaching lost Jews... He encouraged Timothy, who was a half-Jew, to be circumcised so that there wouldn't be a barrier in breaking through into these Jewish circles. Rights upon rights laid down for the sake of others. We read elsewhere, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. We should be a people who though we are sons and daughters of the kingdom, use our freedom and security as a source of strength to make ourselves servants of all. This is what Christ did. Again, this in no way means freedom to sin. So if our refrain from idol worship or our refrain from engaging with the sexual culture that our society has creates a barrier for the gospel, that's a barrier we don't have the power to tear down. Only God can do that in softening hearts. We see that, again, played out in Corinthians in relation, yet again, to food sacrifice to idols. Paul says, if you're walking through the market surrounded by unbelievers... Don't go asking if every bit of food has been sacrificed to idols. There's no need to do that. If an unbeliever invites you over for dinner, don't go probing about where this food came from. Don't try and raise up barriers between you. But if the unbeliever in the market or in the home says, praise to the gods, this has been offered and sacrificed to them, then don't eat it. If it becomes clear they see your action as an endorsement of their idol worship, you must abstain. That's sin. 
even if it offends them and puts up some barriers. But the the reality is, we should be a flexible people. Paul says he has become all things to all people so that by by, by any means he might save some. Again, not compromising truth or engaging in sin or going against our consciences, but being a people who see the freedom we have in Christ and using it for the good of others. This is not the spirit of our age. The spirit of our age says, I don't have to, or make me, or that's not fair, or what about my rights? It's a five-year-old spirit. We shouldn't be the ones who are seeking to win every argument. We shouldn't be the ones who are ensuring we have the most comfortable seat in the room. We aren't the ones who fold our arms in protest and say, I don't have to. I'm not saying there isn't ever a time to seek justice. There is or to apply our rights. There are, especially so when when we're pursuing to see the rights of others upheld. We should fight for others. But what it means is that our, our general disposition should be one of sacrifice. Why is this so? If we have such wonderful rights in Christ, why not just claim them all and live like a king? Well, for one, we want to avoid unnecessary offense. Paul saw it necessary to offend the Galatians about circumcision because they were trying to teach other brothers that you had to be circumcised to be saved. So he rebuked them and he held up the rights of others to not have to be circumcised. Yet again, when it came to the unbelieving Jews in Athens, he wanted them first and foremost to see the gospel. And so rather than getting hung up on the issue of circumcision, since it was not sin for Timothy to be circumcised, he just didn't have to, he didn't have to do it, he encourages Timothy to be circumcised so that there might not be an initial stumbling block between them. A modern example we might face could be around the issue of alcohol. Though I believe the Scriptures allow for the moderated intake of alcohol, and there's good reasons to see that in the Scriptures, and I do enjoy a good glass of wine every now and then, I happily set aside that freedom. If a brother or sister in Christ is troubled by that, or if it's a temptation for them, I wouldn't invite them over for dinner and set out a bottle of wine. I would not want to offend their conscience or tempt them in any way. doesn't mean we might not ever talk about it, but I'm not looking to needlessly offend another. And I certainly don't want to lead any brothers and sisters into sin. We ought to live this way in the world as well. We're told to be well thought of by outsiders. Again, not because we compromise the gospel, but because we seek in matters of conscience and in grace, to love others well and lay our preferences and our rights down and defer to them. We should speak truth as believers, but I fear so much of the image of Christians in modern culture is people who are easily offended and put out, people who take issue with just about anything that anyone does. This shouldn't be the case particularly when it comes to matters of preference. We have enough we will have to work through in presenting the gospel to others. Why add to it struggles over things that God does not even command? 
In most things, we should be the easiest people to get along with, the easiest people to govern, and the easiest people to relate to. Forbearance should be a much bigger word in our vocabulary than it is. This is what Christ has done for us. And living this way brings much glory to God. There's another example from Corinthians. The Corinthian church had a lot, a lot going on there. They had a lot to learn on this matter. In another exchange in chapter 5, Paul comes against the regular practice that these believers had of taking one another to court. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Again, this isn't a statement about defending others or never standing up for rights, but it's a challenge to the heart that unceasingly says, I will have my justice. Is it not better? Is it not more glorious? Is it not a greater reflection of the gospel of Christ to forbear rather than to parade around as if Christ himself has not forgiven us? If we find ourselves regularly picking fights, if it always has to be our way that the dishwasher is loaded, if we have to make sure everyone sees everything the way that we see it, even on the smallest, most periphery issues, if the songs sung at church have to always suit our personal preferences, if our, if our go-to response to any slight is an attack or self-defense, if we place our flag in the sand over every inconsequential issue, then we have to ask, do we have room to say with the Lord here, so as not to offend, let's pay it. And, I, and know that we can do this. We can live a life of sacrifice because we know that God will take care of us. And now you may be sitting there thinking, okay, where does the fish come into play in all of this? It's, a, an, it's an example of God's provision. This miraculous provision of this coin is a reminder. God will provide for us as we seek to do good to others. All that we have is God's, and we just offer it back to Him. It will be inconvenient at times to lay down your rights for another. It will be painful at times to let someone else's preferences take the lead it certainly was painful for Timothy being circumcised for the sake of the unbelieving Jews. But no sacrifice can be more painful than the eternal Son of God hanging on the cross to die at the hands of those that He had made, those He came to save, and taking on Himself the full wrath of God for sins that He did not commit. Talk about laying your rights down. That's what Jesus has done for us. Church, this is a glorious truth. That we have been freed in Christ from sin, condemnation, and the burden of the law. But we are to use all of that freedom for good. The Lord sees every sacrifice you make. There's a day coming when every wrong will be made right. And every right of yours will be perfectly held up for all of eternity. 
As we walk, though, as sojourners on this earth, as citizens of a different kingdom, let us lay down our rights at the foot of the cross if it means loving others, serving others, and furthering the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's be people who do not delight in offense, but seek to make peace whenever possible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example we have in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that though Christ has all power and Christ could destroy any enemy and Christ is not beholden to any man to do anything that any of us might say, he has laid down his life for us. Help us to be a people who live in the freedom you've given us. Help us not to feel weight of condemnation. Let us repent for our sins. Let us pursue holiness, but do so knowing we have been freed in Christ and we have his spirit And it's not our performance, it's not our adherence to anything in particular apart from expressing faith in Christ that makes us right with you. And in the joy that that brings and the gratitude that brings and the love that that brings, let us walk in holiness and righteousness and let us love others well. Let us follow the example of our Lord, carry our cross, lay down our lives for the sake of others that by any means some might be saved. That by any means we might build one another up. Help us to avoid unnecessary offense. Give us discernment and wisdom. Lord, when it's time to assert, when it's time to defer. When it's time to stand for truth, when it's time to listen and defer. Father, help us. Help us to be a people who live out truth in all of these ways. Help us to be a people who can discern sin from error. Help us to be a people who walk in wisdom. Help us to be a people who emulate your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell, given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.